Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number. From, say that next word with me, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. But the beauty of Revelation 7 will not happen until the practice of Acts chapter 13 is valued by us and pursued with passion. I'm convinced that global missions is not an attempt to erase the cultural identities of people groups around the world, as critics would claim, but rather evangelizing is not about minimizing culture. It's about proclaiming hope to people of all cultures. This hope is not that they can live like the West. It's a hope that they can fully participate in God's eternal kingdom. I'm very pleased with the decisions of our missions team to partner with Wycliffe Bible Translators this year because making the Bible accessible in the heart language of the world is one way that we can avoid the subtle mistaken idea that people must be like us if they are to be godly. The relationship between a sending church and sent missionaries, that relationship is integral to the whole mission strategy. Last week, we looked at near missions, missions that may cross cultural lines and cultural boundaries, but yet geographically close to us. This week, we began to look at far missions, missions that crosses geopolitical boundaries with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts started here, then it moved near, and now with chapter 13, the mission is going far. Let us look to the example of the first church to see if there might be some model for us and our participation in the gospel endeavor. Because I see, as I read chapters 13, 14, and 15 this week, that the gospel is linked to global missions. We cannot be a New Testament church if we have no heart for what God is doing around the world. See, our concern for home is important. Whether you think America needs to be rebuilt better or made great again, there is value to wanting one's homeland to flourish. Economics and politics recognizes the importance of the European Commonwealth, the OPEC countries, Russia and China, and the influences upon our way of life. 
do we realize the need and have a passion for the gospel to go to these places? These places are influencing us. Will we take the gospel of Jesus Christ and influence them? For as the world becomes flatter and more connected, we must indeed have greater compassion for those who are around us. Missions is not either or, as if God is somehow limited in his blessing. Either God is going to bless us or he is going to bless them. There is no shortage of God's blessing. So we must think both locally and globally in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we read these few these first chapters, 13, 14, and 15, we see places that are unfamiliar to us. And so I've provided a little bit of a map for us to understand what is happening. Everything begins in Syria, at the northern part of Syria. They then go through Cyprus, they land in Pamphos, and then they cross up into Asia Minor. They make a tour, and then they tour back, and then they cross back over to Antioch. Now, this map, as we look in the back of our Bible, mentions places that we won't see if we look on a map of Cyprus and Turkey today. However, if you pull up Google Maps which I did this week, you will see these places that are circled and underlined are cities that still exist to this very day that once heard the gospel of Jesus Christ in Acts chapters 13 and 14. And so being involved in these places continues to be a call for us as the people of God. As I looked at the first three verses of chapter 13, I see something that tells us about the source of missionaries. I notice that if we want to have missionaries in the world, there are three things that we need to do. We must worship God, we must fast, and we must pray. Because worship, fasting, and praying is the seedbed of missions, not some sort of travel envy, or what some people call missionary tourism, as people want to see the world, and they'll say, well, if I have to be a missionary to do it, then that's what I'll do. Just like many people enlisted in military because they wanted to see the world, and they thought the cheapest way for me to see the world is to join the military. I'm not so naive as to believe that there are some people who want to see the world, and if they can get Christians to support their tourism, that's what they do. But that's not the source of true missionaries. True missionaries spring up out of the seedbed of worship, fasting, and prayer. I've told some of you that I have a bucket list item to proclaim Jesus on the six inhabited continents. Witnessing to penguins in Antarctica would be a bonus, but it's not a part of the bucket list. And I, in the last 30 years, have checked off half of those six countries. And 
Maybe if I remain healthy until 87 years old, I'll be able to evangelize in Africa, South America, and Australia. But to be honest, this bucket list does not arise out of worship, fasting, and prayer, which I would consider godly disciplines. My bucket list arose out of listening and studying and dreaming, which are human endeavors. These goals are not foolish. They are not malicious. There's nothing evil about wanting to announce Jesus on six continents. But like most bucket lists, they don't measure up to the example of the early church when they sent missionaries. Romans chapter 15 mentions that Paul had a dream to go to Spain. But there is no indication that God ever permitted or enabled that trip. It wasn't an evil plan. It just wasn't part of the work of God using his church to send missionaries according to his timing and design. So as Paul dreamt about Spain, I dream about six continents, and we'll see if God will mobilize the church to to make that happen out of prayer, worship, and fasting. I love how our missions team prayerfully considers many different opportunities, and I have yet to hear a single foolish or malicious request. It is just that if God wants Flint Hills Community Church to participate with a particular partner, God is able to impress that upon the heart of the team as a whole. And that's the way God raises up missions and missionaries. See, we don't only see the source of missionaries as worship, fasting, and prayer, but I also see in the next few verses, verses 4 through 12, the need for missionaries. The need around the world for missionaries is first because false religion is a greater foe than um, false religion is greater than atheism. It's not that they're ignorant and don't know. The greater foe is that people think they know, but they don't. And so we need missionaries who will proclaim truth into false religion. There are many places in the world where people groups have no witness beyond natural revelation of creation and their conscience. And when these people are introduced to the truth of a God who personally loves them and seeks to redeem them through the person of Jesus, they are frequently led by their tribal leader and the whole village responds favorably. The greater threat is when wrong worship of the true God or worship of false gods has convinced the locals that they do not need the gospel of Jesus Christ. So wherever there is false religion, there is a need for missionaries. Wherever there are people who have never heard the name of Jesus, there is a need for missionaries. But I also see that effective missions involves both cooperation and cultural sensitivity. Notice in verse 2, Barnabas and Saul transitions into verse 13 of Paul and his companions. Notice the change in order. 
Barnabas and Saul becomes Paul and his companions. Verse 9 is an indication for us that there is somehow a change of identity. And this change of identity that happens so that the guy who was previously referred to as Saul is now referred to as Paul, it was not his conversion on the road to Damascus. His name change happens as he is sent into Asia Minor, into a different culture with a different language and with different priorities. It's not a name change because um, all of a sudden he was changed on the road to Damascus. It's Paul is now moving into a predominantly Roman environment and when in Rome, act like the Romans. So when in Rome, Saul begins to use his Roman name. I have a friend who was a missionary in Costa Rica and is now serving in Honduras. And since the letter J is very difficult to pronounce to native Spanish speakers, my friend Julie has become Huli when she is on the field. Because they can't pronounce the J, she's simply Huli to them. Now, imagine what would happen if an American named Larry were sent to China as a missionary. I'm sure Larry would change his name to something that would be much more easily pronounced among the local peoples. And that's what Saul does here. The S sound was difficult for the Romans, so he simply began to use his surname, Paul, as he traveled among Asia Minor. But I notice in here, not only did Barnabas and Saul become Paul and his partners, I also noticed that they were always sent out in pairs. And they were sent out in pairs because as they would travel together along the road, discussions would happen. And today, what we call windshield time is prime discipleship opportunity. When you are traveling on business, you most often have the earbud going so that you can converse with somebody. If you're traveling with a family on the way to vacation, that time behind the windshield is primary, is prime faith development opportunity. It's prime discipleship time when we are behind a windshield just as they traveled on the roads together in the first century. Their cooperation, their traveling in pairs, prevents discouragement and burnout. And at the same time, it permits discipleship to occur within the team. Now, today's text does not only talk about the source of missionaries, it also describes for us the message of missionaries. In Acts 13.38, we see that the gospel liberated Jews from dead Judaism within Antioch. If we look at these verses, we see that Paul used their book, because they were people of the book, Paul used their book to explain the work of God. Matter of fact, Craig Keener describes it this way. Paul's scripture-laced exposition in chapter 13, verse 16 through 43, contrasts very plainly with chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, 
and chapter 17. And it shows that Paul adapted to different audiences in his speeches as he did in his letters. When Paul is talking to Jewish people, he used the Jewish book. When Paul is talking to people who do not believe in the Jewish Torah, he used other means of communicating to them the work of God. And we must also be fluid in our presentation. Not that the gospel changes, but that the emphasis may change based upon who we are talking with. I am this morning speaking on a high school and adult level. And some of the children have tuned me out 10 minutes ago because I'm not addressing them. If I were addressing our kids club, I would use different words and different stories to zoom into them. But it, wasn't, it wouldn't change the message. And Paul does the same thing. And we, in our witness, as local and if we were to be sent as foreign missionaries, must also be sensitive to the cultural realities around us. Fifty years ago, a gospel presentation would begin with, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. In our postmodern culture, a gospel presentation often must begin with, do you believe that there is a God somewhere who is personally aware of you? See, we used to assume that people knew there was a God. Today, we can't use that assumption. And so we must be relevant to the audience that we are trying to reach. See, Paul did not limit his missionary activity to the informed who had a similar background to his own. He also aggressively reached out to those who were different from him. Because in the end of chapter 13, Paul proclaims the gospel in a way that liberated the Gentiles from a dead paganism. And a paganism is simply a belief in other gods. It's not a moral judgment. It's a belief statement. To the uninformed Gentiles, Paul leveraged their experiences together to expose the work of God. The Jews needed the work of God explained. The pagans needed to see the work of God. And when they were opposed to him, the opposition in Iconium then forced the gospel to spread to the smaller areas of Lystra and Derby. The lesson that I see here in verses 4 through 7 is, if we experience opposition, if people do not receive our witness, that is not an excuse to give up. It's not an excuse to stop. If people do not receive our witness, it simply becomes an opportunity that there may be somebody else. There may be someplace else where our witness is needed. And so there was opposition in Iconium, and so then Paul and his buddies moved to a different area. And when they went to the different area, they healed the man who had no use of his feet, which prompted two different responses. In Lystra, the very same town that saw the very same miracle, it prompted two very different responses. One response is, they thought the gods had come down from the heavens to be among them. 
And they said, no, 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 no. We're, we're just ordinary humans like you are. Don't, don't, don't get distracted by the miracle. We're human too. The power isn't here. The power is there. And the very same miracle was read by somebody else to be, boy, those are, boy he needs to be killed. And so they took up stones to kill him till they thought that he was dead. I know I've told this story before, but I also know that all of us have slept since then. So we may or may not remember the story and its application that the very same event can cause two very different interpretations. There were two boys who were put in a room, each with a shovel and one large pile of manure that needed to be moved. One boy complained endlessly about the stench and I've got blisters and, and, and my back hurts. I hate using this shovel. I hate being in hot and it stinks. But the other boy, man, he's eagerly shoveling manure just as quick as his little arms could muster. And when the first boy asked the second boy, why are you working so hard? The boy replied, with all this manure, there has to be a pony nearby. And the reality is, is two of us can see the very same event and read it very differently. And so when you offer the hope that Jesus loves you and died for your sin and will provide for you eternal life, some people will say, are you calling me a sinner? And they'll get all in a huff because you mentioned sin. While somebody else will hear the very same story and, and they will say, you mean God really loves me enough to forgive me of my sin? God really loves me enough to invite me into eternity with him? The very same story can prompt very different results, just as it did for Paul in the town of Lystra. But if we remain centered on the gospel, it not only liberates the converts from their past, it will also, the gospel will free immature believers. Because Acts chapter 15 is a story about how the gospel liberates the church from unnecessary regulations. The story in, in Acts 15 is, do people have to become Jews in order to become Christians? But the application is so much broader than that. Because sometimes discipleship does not look what you think a disciple looks like. And sometimes discipleship does not look what I think a disciple looks like. See, Paul and Barnabas are returning from Asia Minor, going back to Antioch with good news and good reports of what God was doing to the people. But at the same time, unnamed men are coming up from Jerusalem and they are descending upon Antioch with extra expectations. They're saying, if you truly want to be a Christ follower, you need to do it this way. And how many of us have heard those who want to heap a burden upon our shoulders that says, if you truly want to follow Christ, you'll do it this way? Because oftentimes we are too quick to make other believers' obedience look like our obedience. Now, let me very clearly state this. By saying this, I am not saying that the Bible is silent 
on behavior. The Bible does speak to specific behaviors. What this says is that sometimes we tend to add to what the Bible requires. If you were part of an Amish community, you would be told that any vehicle other than black is an indication that you've got a sin pride problem. If you were worshiping with a group of some Pentecostals, they would claim that if you are wearing any jewelry, sometimes they would exclude a plain gold wedding band. But if you are wearing any jewelry at all, it's a sign that you are worldly. I've been in some settings where um, children at the beginning of the line for the potluck is seen as bad parenting. Why don't those, ki- why don't those parents make those kids wait? been in other places where the kids at the head of the line is seen as compassionate parenting. The parents want their kids to be fed so that they'll sit and be quiet so that everybody else can have a good time. In three weeks, you will determine for yourself if costumes and candy are a means of fun generosity to your neighbors or if it's the first step towards Satan worshiping the occult. I've intentionally not even hinted at issues of clothing, music, or methods of education. Because I have sung a cappella foreign chants, and I have sung current radio hits. I've worn a three-piece suit to church, and I've worn shorts with no socks. I have attended public school, private school, magnet schools, I have a sister who chose to homeschool. Because in my opinion, these are all areas where my obedience to God may look different than your obedience to God. But in all of these areas, we must all exercise our liberty with responsibility. The characters of the congregational meeting in Acts chapter 15 will also speak elsewhere about legalism, liberty, and license tensions. Paul will expand about on these in the book of Galatians. Peter will address the jewelry issue in chapter 3 of 1 Peter. Paul will talk to Corinth about diet and days or about meat and memories. We are often too quick to make others' obedience look like our obedience. And that is not an excuse for me to be disobedient. It's a call for grace that God's Spirit would work in that other person. But let me conclude with three principles that regard our obedience. Three principles that should guide what we expect of others who follow Jesus Christ. The first principle is, do not overburden other people. Acts chapter 15, verse 28, the disciples said, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these require. Let's not go overboard in what we expect of others, as I see in Acts 15, 28. The second principle is that Christ is to be our only master. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, 
that tells us all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Read that as addiction. God intends for us to live in liberty, not in domination or in addictions. And the third principle, do not overburden others. Christ should be your only master. And thirdly, always act in faith. If you give out a candy bar on October 31st, can you do that in faith? If you choose to put a mask on over your face, are you doing that in faith? Are you doing it in fun? Are you doing it in worship to Satan? Are you doing it simply to have a good laugh? I don't know. I don't know the motive of your heart. But Romans 14 verse 23 does warn us that whatever does not proceed out of faith is sin. And so whatever call you make on Halloween, make sure you're doing it consistent with your faith that is rooted in the scriptures. Whatever you wear to worship on Sundays, make sure it's consistent with your understanding of what the scriptures teach. Whatever style of music you choose to listen to, make sure it's rooted in what the scriptures say is good music. However you cast your ballot on November 8th, make sure you're doing it as an expression of the faith that is being shaped in you by the word of God. Because I do see that today's longer passage is simply a reminder of our commission for the world and our compassion for the world. We need to take the gospel to people who are far from us. And it ends with a warning that we would refrain from intimidating other people to act like us. May our involvement in mission increase in our compassion and our generosity. And for each one of us, may your involvement in mission flow from God's grace at work in you. I left a little bit longer response song this morning. And if you listen to Christian radio, you may have heard this song by Steve Green. I chose this song because it calls each of us to remember our motivation, whether we are speaking of Christ across the street or around the world. Let's stand together as we 